Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. Uh, we are here at the studios in Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., uh, and this is a program that we do every 30 days. We try and cover, in about 30 minutes, an impactful development in the field of OSHA law. Uh, as I said before, I'm Monish Rath, a partner here at Keller and Heckman, and I'm joined today by my colleague, John Gustafson, one of the valued members of our OSHA law team. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, John, we've got a great topic. Uh, as you'd noted in the title slide, this is a Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission decision that just came out. And the decision substantially limits the scope of an existing standard that was enforced against a specific employer. Uh, and I think that uh, that this, this case is impactful for just about any employer because although it applies to construction, a lot of general industry employers engage in construction activities that fall under the scope of the construction section of the OSH Act standards. Uh, so it's a really important decision and uh, one that has a huge impact potentially. We will be learning the full impact of this in years to come. Uh, I should note that the OSHA 3030 is a pro program that we've done for over six years now. We're entering our we're in our seventh year, and there are therefore over 70 different episodes, all of which are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And you can check those out at your own time, and it's a self-executing file that will give you the slides and the recording uh, it, running in conjunction and in tandem. And so it's a great opportunity to reprise any of our prior OSHA 3030 episodes, many, many of which are still very relevant today and a really great way to quickly, within 30, about 30 minutes, catch up on a host of subjects in the field of OSHA law. And I'll say one more thing. We've, as I said, we've done this over 70 times. All of them have been complimentary to clients of Keller and Heckman and friends of the firm. And all that we ask in exchange for the great uh, material that we provided and great analysis is that when you get this invitation the next time by email, please forward it on to three others within your organization and at other organizations, people who are responsible for safety and health, safety and health professionals, and in-house counsel. And that's the only tuition that we ask for, uh, but it's critical for the future of the program. The other thing I'd say is we reprise this program as a podcast. So you don't have to be tethered to your desk if you don't mind not getting the slides and just want to hear the audio. You can get this as a podcast when you're on the go. And if you do, uh, please remember to subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast outlet like iTunes or SoundCloud. And when you've listened to it, please like or rate the program so that it is easily searchable for others. We're very grateful for those two very modest requests. And with that, on with the show. John, why don't we start by talking about what we're going to talk about. Well, the case we're talking about here is Kiewit Power Constructors Company. And we'll first get into the facts in the Kiewit Power Constructors Company's case, the citation defense that they mounted uh, against OSHA citations, uh, and it's, it's uh, processed through the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And we'll get into a little bit, just to make sure everyone's caught up, uh, about a, give, providing a background on OSHA's authority to set standards and the agency's arguments as to why it was 
should have been able to enforce standards that it had set in the first two years of the history of the act against uh, a construction company, even if the, the particular standard was initially promulgated uh, in general industry. And we'll go uh, through what the arguments were by Kiwit, what the arguments were by OSHA, how the commission came down in its decision, and uh, maybe we ought to also talk about how this impacts other construction standards and whether or not other construction standards are also vulnerable to the same kinds of arguments raised by Kiwit. Finally, as we always do, we should finish off with a practical list of takeaway items for you, the listening members of the OSHA 3030 community, in a slide that we always consistently refer to as what employers should do. So, John, with that, let's get on with talking about the case involving Kiwit power constructors. Sure, Manish. So OSHA cited Kiwit power constructors at their Rogersville, Tennessee site uh, for a violation of the quick drenching standard. That's a standard that requires immediate on-site access to body and eye-washing facilities uh, for employees who may be exposed to corrosive materials. So the the standard is triggered by the presence of corrosive materials, and the OSHA inspector found that uh, Kiwit was using electrical insulating resin, the packaging of which said that it was corrosive. On appeal to the ALJ, the administrative law judge, Kiwit challenged OSHA's authority for adoption of the standard. Uh, their focus was not on the facts of the citation, but but really the authority to make the citation. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's a, a really uh, astute argument to raise on the part of Kiewit. Uh, so, so let's go back a little bit and make sure everyone's caught up. The Occupational Safety and Health Act is enacted by Congress in 1970. And essentially, amongst other things, the, what essentially is going on is Congress is empowering the agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to promulgate standards relating to health and safety. And it, it has at least two methods by which the agency can promulgate a standard. The second of which comes under Section 6B of the Act, and it essentially says that safety and health standards have to be promulgated through traditional notice and comment rulemaking. In short, this means that the agency has to first, before it publishes a final rule, it first has to provide affected stakeholders with proper notice that it is about to do so and what it thinks the standard would look like. Then, on the basis of that notice, it has to provide stakeholders with an opportunity to comment and to be heard. And unless the agency provides notice of a prospective rule and a fair opportunity to comment and be heard by stakeholders, it hasn't undergone uh, the traditional rigors that are required by administrative agencies. And for other agencies, this is actually set forth under the uh, different congressional act, the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. And so the OSH Act has its own special provision for undertaking this notice and comment process in order to fairly delegate from Congress to OSHA that power to, to set rules. Now, it does create a second uh, method by which OSHA can promulgate a standard, 
it said, look, we have so many different occupational safety and health standards that we have to promulgate that it will never get done unless we create this second method. And under Section 6A, what Congress essentially allowed the agency to do is they said to OSHA, you can, for a limited period only, for the first two years after the enactment of the OSHA Act, you may promulgate uh, standards under a shortcut method, essentially, either adopting established federal standards relating to safety and health, occupational safety and health, or adopting national consensus standards relating to occupational safety and health. And the uh, idea there is that if you take established federal standards or national consensus standards and you look at the process by which those were promulgated prior to the enactment of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, that that, Congress believed, could stand as a suitable proxy for the notice and comment process that OSHA would have to undertake. And it gave OSHA that limited period of two years to adopt any of those standards it so chose. And it did, indeed, adopt an enormously long list of consensus standards, national consensus standards, and established federal standards as part of that 6A authority. So within the two years under 6A, OSHA adopted the quick drenching standard that we just talked about. Um, this was a this was formerly a standard under the promulgated under the Walsh Healy Act of 1936, which was administered by the Department of Labor, uh, along with several other standards that came as a result of the Walsh-Healy Act. Uh, and this, these, uh, this was a federal standard as opposed to a consensus standard. And a quick note on, on a voluntary consensus standard, national consensus standard, those are developed by standard development organizations like ASTM or ASME. Uh, and, and those are private, but they're allowed to become part of uh, federal regulations only under the condition that they were open to the public and uh, permitted stakeholder participation and in that way had an adequate substitute for notice and comment procedures. Uh, so Walsh-Healy Act standards only applied to a limited uh, sector and that is uh, those those manufacturers or suppliers that were supplying the federal government under uh, government contracts. So simultaneous to the adoption of these Walsh-Heliac standards, OSHA published a, promulgated a regulation that acknowledged the limited scope of these standards. Uh, OSHA, and that's what that regulation says. It says, uh, these Walsh-Heliac standards only apply to manufacturing or supply operations which would be subject to Walsh-Healy. So that's interesting because the quick drenching standard that we're describing was originally published as a Walsh-Healy Public Contracts Act standard. In other words, it only intended to apply to employers that were providing materials under federal government contracts and not uh, in any way related to uh, any other sector. So in, when in September 1971, OSHA uh, took its adopted 
uh, Walsh-Healy quick-based, quick-drenching standard that was applying to manufacturers for government contractors, which had it, it essentially had adopted in the general industry segment of the OSHA standards. In September of 1971, it published a, a statement saying that it would now apply all of those Walsh-Healy standards to employers in both general industry as well as construction. John? Uh, that's right, Manish. It, so it revoked that, that recognition of limited scope and that permitted the the standard to apply to construction. That's right, and it did so without going through the notice and comment rulemaking. But essentially, the effect was to take a very limited scope standard, This, for example, this quick drench standard that was applied to manufacturers in the service of public contracts, and then to apply it to all employers, including in construction. And that expanded scope of application it did so in merely by publishing a statement in the Federal Register. That would have constituted the notice, but it hardly constitutes notice and comment. It did so as a final statement, uh, which took effect immediately in September of 1971. And it continued to uh, engage in this practice. In 1979, it published a notice in the Federal Register uh, in which it listed the general industry standards uh, that we're describing here that were originally under the Walsh-Healy Act uh, specific scope standards, and it applied them to construction. And that includes that quick drenching standard that was cited against uh, keyword constructors. Uh, it did so again in 1983. It did so again in 1991, continuing to state its approach or policy that it believed that these established federal standards could be adopted by OSHA without regard to the scope set forth in those originally adopted federal standards, and that it could be broadened by the agency to any number of employers, including switching from general industry to, uh, to construction, etc. And so that became the adopted practice of the agency. In 1993, OSHA published a rule uh, where it stated essentially that the quick drenching and other uh, general industry standards, it, it actually formally implemented them in the 1926 segment of the OSHA standards. So it formally incorporated them into the construction side of, of the standards. Uh, this, it also did without notice and comment. And uh, because it was a large number uh, and a, a huge impact on 1926, it made a statement uh, explaining its uh, maneuver by saying that it had good cause to uh, short-circuit the notice and comment rulemaking because these were standards that had already been applied to construction for quite some time. Uh, it had done so by force of other Federal Register publications that also didn't have notice and comment, but it's essentially saying we've been doing so for so long that we don't need to go through notice and comment to formally adopt them in Section 1926. We're just going to do that uh, as a matter of expediency. So that's, that's what brings us current, is that 1993 formal adoption into 1926, Section 1926, the construction standards. So Kiewit and the Secretary of Labor are before the commission, or were before the commission, and they raised these arguments to the commission. With all of that as the historical background. Exactly. Uh, Kiewit talked about what Manish was just saying, uh, 
that the source standard did not apply to construction uh, and that it was never applied to construction through notice and comment rulemaking. Um, it, it, it was both parties acknowledged that the OSH Act does not permit changes in a standard's substance without notice and comment. But Kiewit argued that expansion of scope is indeed a change in the st standard substance, whereas the Secretary of Labor said a change in scope does not change the substance of the standard. Only the protective provisions constitute the substance of the standard. Uh, so Kiewit argued that because the substance was changed, uh, notice and comment was required the Secretary of Labor argued that this was an, a, an interpretation of the expert agency a, of the OSH Act, and therefore it was entitled to deference under what's known as Chevron deference. The, ex the expert agency in this case being OSHA itself. Being OSHA, correct. Yeah. Uh, interpreting the OSH Act, which they administer. Um, and Chevron deference just gives deference to reasonable agency interpretations of congressionally passed statutes if the plain language of the statute is unclear. So these are the arguments that Kiewit made and OSHA made, and the commission heard all these arguments and ultimately found for Kiewit, saying, well, we think, the commission said, that this case turns on what authority was granted to OSHA under Section 6A, this is the section that allowed for two years the agency to promulgate rules by adopting a national consensus standard or an established federal standard. And if you look at the, the language in 6A and find that it's unambiguous and very clear, then you don't have to go to the agency's interpretations and grant the agency deference. In this case, however, the commission said, well, we do think Section 6A is ambiguous as to whether or not it intended the agency to adopt, to be able to adopt a fe established federal standard without regard to the scope of the federal standard. That there's nothing in 6A that says that the agency couldn't do what it did. So, so then it went to the question of agency interpretation and said, we hear the agency in its interpretation, but we don't in this case, grant deference. We don't think deference to the agency is warranted because the procedure which they used was defective. And ultimately, uh, I think what they're saying is that the agency's interpretation on substantive matters for which it's an expert should be granted deference, but it does nevertheless need to follow the procedural requirements of, of that are conceptually uh, a part of administrative law that are specifically articulated in the Administrative Procedures Act, and in this case, much more relevantly, that are specifically articulated in the OSH Act, that you still have to go through notice and comment rulemaking if you're under Section 6B, and if you're under six, Section 6A, you may adopt a federal, uh, established federal standard or a national consensus standard, but that when you expand the scope of the adopted standard, that that does impose substantive requirements on stakeholders and therefore would require notice and comment. Uh, and I think that that is the essence of the commission's decision. There's, of course, more, John. Right. The, uh, so the commission stated that, that this 
that were it to adopt the Secretary of Labor's interpretation, uh, the construction industry would be deprived in from its ability to participate and its right to participate under the OSH Act, the Administrative Procedures Act, and arguably uh, the Due Process Clause of the Constitution. Um, so it, it, as, it, as it delved into the context and the history of the OSH Act, it, it talked about how the OSH Act intended uh, for standards to go through notice and comment, but that the ones that w the standards that were immediately adopted had already gone through uh, notice and comment in their original form, and in this case, that would be when they were promulgated under the Walsh-Healy Act. Uh, further, the commission stated that there there is no affirmative authority under the OSH Act to expand the scope of a standard without notice and comment, and such authority would lead to absurd results. And an example of this is, say, the application of maritime standards to construction or to manufacturing industries. These are uh, applications that would never pass notice and comment and would lead to absurd uh, obligations on the part of those industries. Uh, for this reason, additional, additional obligations on a new industry are indeed substantive changes to the standard. Uh, so, so in that way, they agreed with Kiwit that uh, an expansion of scope is a change in the substance of an act. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you look at the concept that underlies the Section 6A, um, the creation of Section 6A, it's that these federally established standards or national consensus standards, the process by which those standards were promulgated is a suitable proxy, Congress thought, for administrative notice and comment rulemaking. And if that's true, that that's the reasoning, then when you, when you have a, a standard that applies to manufacturers of materials in public contracts, the rest of the world didn't get a chance to comment on it or participate in the development of it or to explain why it may not apply in their sector. Like, for example, here, the construction sector, uh, you, may, you may have good reasons for why a standard reasonably belongs in uh, manufacturing but wouldn't be suitable in construction or may need to be slightly altered to make it suitable in construction. And the construction folk never had a, an opportunity to participate in that established federal standard that OSHA had adopted under 6A. So if you want to expand the scope, you ought to give them that chance to be heard then at that juncture. And that's, that's the part that the underlying public policy that, that the commission thought OSHA had violated. That's right, Manish. The commission looked at the legislative history of the act uh, there was a lot of congressional testimony that that indicated that this was to be done uh, as Kiwit interpreted it. Uh, the immediate adoption was only for uh, to apply to industries already familiar with those standards. A quick note, uh, additional note on notice and comment: the Supreme Court has. Uh, in, in more than one case, interpreted notice and comment carve-outs uh, as requiring explicit language from Congress. So there's no ability of an agency to infer a, an exception from notice and comment requirements. It must be in the text of the statute. 
Yeah, we're living in interesting times because the Supreme Court has looked at the whole question of agency interpretation or uh, uh, the idea that an agency can interpret its own standards or that an agency is empowered to interpret a congressional act in multiple cases that, that you know, there may have been one every 20 years before and now there have been three in the past few years that are of, of landmark kind of quality. And so I think that what we talk about here when we talk about notice and comment rulemaking and the agency being able to chime in on when it can and can't and telling the commission or courts when they they need to defer to the agency on this. I think that this is a a subject that has great interest to the courts right now. Uh, So so when we look at the scope of uh, the implication of this particular case, uh, I think it's hard to calculate, and I think that, that the years going forward will will teach us a, a great deal about this. Uh, there were a number of construction standards that were similarly adopted the way the quick trench standard was adopted that originally came under subsection 6A uh, as an adopted standard in the first two years and then were sort of shuffled into the permanent uh, canon of Section 1926 standards in a similar method. And so it's not just the singular case for Kiewit, nor is it merely the singular standard uh, for any uh, case of uh, an employer being enforced against it under that uh, quick trend standard. But it may actually be that there are a number of standards under Section 1926 similarly promulgated that may be suitably subject to the same kinds of challenges that Kiewit raised. Uh, well, certainly, if you look at the Federal Register notices that adopted as formally uh, set construction standards, those standards that were originally adopted under general industry in 1979, 1983, for example, you may find a host of other construction standards that may be uh, vulnerable to this kind of similar challenge. it's also a fair point, John, that you raise here on bullet number three, the state plan standards have been adopted along the way. And that's a great observation, that state plan standards have been adopted along the way to mirror federal standards. And to that extent, those would have to follow the similar fate if, in fact, they're adopting a standard that was in itself uh, unenforceable for the same reasons. Well, Let's talk about what employers should do. Let's talk about some practical takeaway items. I think it's clear, uh, as we had talked about before, that that uh, the idea of deference itself is not set in concrete, that the courts have signaled that they're willing to reexamine Chevron uh, if given examples which require them to do so. Uh, this case certainly is a possible case like that. I think that the first thing we ought to talk about is, it's hard to imagine, John, that OSHA is going to take this commission decision and just take it lying down and watch uh, quite a handful of construction standards walk out the door, forced thereby to go through notice and comment rulemaking to repromulgate all of those standards, when the prospect of doing so seems to me to be more burdensome to the agency than, at the, at the very minimum, at least in the interim, challenging this to a federal Article Three court. Uh, so I do think it's reasonable to expect that OSHA will note an appeal in this specific case. And I think that's the first thing we ought to talk about. So I don't think employers should consider all of those specific 
construction standards to be standards that the employer no longer has to comply with. Quite the opposite. I think the first thing that, that I'd say is that employers should consider uh, all of those standards and whether or not they do improve safety and health in the workplace. And if so, uh, I think the prudent course of action would be to, to comply with those standards or to comply with similar, substantially similar protocol because the, if the employer thinks that those will ach uh, achieve greater safety and health and for those reasons. Uh, but in addition, I think it's also safe to say that to the extent that these are generally recognized best practices or generally recognized hazards and that the protocol called for in those vulnerable standards uh, may result in a reduction in exposure to safety and health hazards, that I think that the general duty clause could arguably be applied anyways. And, and so to the extent that these may be things that you'd have to comply with under the general duty clause anyways, I certainly wouldn't start tearing up those internal safety and health practices. I'd, I'd continue to comply with them where they make sense to continue to comply with them. John, I think there's other steps that I think we can ta uh, recommend that employers take in light of this case. Right. Uh, even even uh, being prudent and continuing to practice those, once cited, uh, the, the validity of the standard should really be examined, and you want to work with your OSHA counsel to determine whether it was properly adopted and properly applied. Well, that's a good point. So we're saying that employers ought to seriously consider continuing to comply with those standards to the extent that they, they continue to make sense in achieving a reduction in safety and health. But if cited by OSHA under one of those standards, that does not mean that the employer doesn't have an opportunity to defend themselves, that the standard itself is unenforceable, either because, as you say, it may not have been promulgated properly, as was the case in the Kiewit Constructors case, or that, that the employer's activity doesn't fit within the scope of that standard. I think those are all reasonable bases to contest a citation, even if you believe that the standard still makes sense as an internal corporate practice. Uh, that's a fair point. Uh, in addition, I would note that if you do intend to consider challenging a citation, the same basic rule of thumb will always apply. Remember, you only have 15 business days to note your intent to contest that citation, uh, after which you may forever hold your peace. There's very, very few exceptions, if any, to the 15-day notice of contest limit. Uh, with that said, those are the t practical takeaway items that we see coming out of uh, Kiwi Constructors. In addition, of course, I think you just got to continue to watch, keep your eyeballs on those other standards and see what other employers are challenging those. Look for other decisions at the administrative law judge level or at the commission level. And to keep an eye on Kiwi Constructors itself to see if it gets challenged to a federal court uh, for, for review and see how high that goes in the federal court system. So that's it for this month's OSHA 3030. Uh, more news on OSHA developments can be caught on Twitter at Rathmanish, on our LinkedIn pages for any one of us, John Gustafson, our colleague Javane Nukumaram, David Sarvati, Larry Halperin, and my own LinkedIn page, as well as the, the firm's Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page. Uh, this OSHA 3030, as well as prior OSHA 3030s, can be found as a podcast on your favorite podcast channel, like iTunes and SoundCloud. And remember to, to rate or like your podcast when you've listened to it, so preferably rate it very well, so that others can find it more easily when looking for the OSHA 3030 as a podcast. 
And and when you get this invitation for next month's OSHA 3030, please remember to forward it on to three other people. The next OSHA 3030 will be on Wednesday at 1 p.m., January 16th. You can find out more information at our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Our sister programs here at Keller & Heckman for TSCA, REACH, and FIFRA uh, are on January 9th, 2019 as well at 1 uh, 1 p.m. Eastern and uh, 1.35 p.m. Eastern. uh, And those will be, uh, information on those can be found at khlaw.com as well. So please keep an eye out for the TSCA 3030, the REACH 3030, and the fifth for 3030. We will see you again, again in about one month. Thank you all very much for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. John Gustafson, thank you very much for joining me on this month's OSHA 3030. Thank uh, you. And until next month, stay safe. <laughs>